Working Wild You, a show where we explore what it means to share the working landscape with people and wildlife from the crossroads of culture and science. I'm Alex Few. And I'm Jared Beaver. At the beginning of this season, we posed the question, when it comes to wolves, can we find a shared vision for the future? And from what we've heard this season, it doesn't really look like we have much consensus. So how do we get there? We're going to revisit a lot of the themes we've talked about this season as we take you to the Great Divide to hear how this search for a shared vision about wolves is playing out in real time in Colorado. Across a Great Divide that is so well known in the ranching community that it's made it into country music songs. We're all so far, so far apart now. It's as deep as it is wide. We're back. We've covered a lot this season on wolves, on working lands, and on some of the ideas and management practices that divide and unite the people of the American West. And today, in our final episode of the season, we're headed to Colorado where a lot of these themes are currently intersecting. Gray wolves are on the ballot this year in Colorado, and if Proposition 114 passes, more than a few will be on public land west of the Continental Divide. Supporters want them relocated here. Opponents say they're already here. Back in November 2020, Coloradans went to the polls to vote for president and a ballot initiative that would call on Colorado Parks and Wildlife to reintroduce wolves to the western rural half of the state. And if you're scratching your head wondering why wolf reintroduction was decided on by voters, well, that was a question being asked by a lot of people, particularly since Colorado Parks and Wildlife had already confirmed wolf sightings in the state. So to fill in some of the background, both Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declined to reintroduce wolves multiple times throughout the last 30 years. But surveys suggested that there was overwhelming support, 84%, to reintroduce wolves to the state. As a result, environmental NGOs and individuals from across the country banded together to form the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund that provided the funding and generated momentum for the reintroduction effort. As we learned was the case with the states in the Pacific Northwest, much of the support came from the urban centers of the state around Denver, an area east of the Continental Divide, referred to as the Front Range. The politically savvy Wolf Action Fund added specific language to reintroduce wolves west of the Continental Divide. Preliminary polling indicated the initiative would not pass if urban residents were worried about wolves in their backyard. Putting the question of wolf reintroduction on the ballot was a new strategy that upended norms in wildlife management. Just as new hunting laws challenged the way decisions around wolf management were made in Idaho and Montana in 2021, this ballot initiative similarly challenged decision-making authority of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the Wildlife Commission, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Supporters argue gray wolves will restore a critical balance in nature by managing deer and elk populations, keeping them from overgrazing on sensitive habitats. Opponents say they'll not only go after deer and elk, 
but pets and livestock, and the state will be on the hook for the cost. Adding even more confusion to this issue, wolves had already dispersed from Wyoming. And when it came to voting time, there was not quite as much support as expected for the ballot measure. Colorado voters narrowly approved Proposition 114 that paves the way for the reintroduction of gray wolves. It was a ballot measure that some say they misunderstood and didn't have a lot of information about when voting. The vote passed with an incredibly slim majority, 50.9% to 49.1% to be exact and largely followed lines across the urban-rural divide in the state. And you can check out the show notes for a map. So now wolves are set to be reintroduced to the western portion of the state. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife is now charged to implement a plan to restore and manage gray wolves. And per the ballot initiative, they're specifically required to hold statewide hearings and use scientific data. So the process is key here because the rural western slope communities, those who would experience the majority of the impact of wolves, largely did not vote for their reintroduction. In a polarized climate like this, how people's interests are incorporated into the process is really going to determine the success. And after the break, we'll learn more about how Colorado is handling this. Hey listener, we wanted to take this break as we're wrapping up the season to acknowledge a major shortcoming. We just talked about how important it is to incorporate everyone's voices, and we want to recognize that in this season, we did not adequately incorporate Native American voices. We learned a lot about cross-cultural collaboration as we created this season, and we're bringing those lessons with us into season two and beyond. Now, back to the show. And so the stakeholder advisory group, they meet monthly and uh, folks within this group kind of come from all different backgrounds. That's Matt, our field producer who traveled to Montrose, Colorado, where the stakeholder advisory group was meeting to inform Colorado's wolf management and reintroduction plan. They represent livestock producers, outfitters, wildlife advocacy groups, and so on. Just getting into the venue now. Do you know if we got a sign in today, if we signed in yesterday? I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and go and do case. it again. <laughs> yeah, just in case. Might as well. So at this meeting, members of the stakeholder advisory group are all kind of convened up front in a circle with Julie Shapiro, who is the facilitator contracted to help run this, this meeting process. At this point, everybody knows each other pretty well. They've been meeting for about six months, um, having some heated debate, but they have receptions and people have been able to build personal relationships. Colorado Parks and Wildlife staff are, are all sitting back around the edges, greeting people as they come in. And um, yeah, it seems like there's just kind of an air of excitement this morning. A lot, uh, a lot to cover today. and. We'll be getting started soon, and I'll have to turn off this recording because we're not allowed to record the actual meeting, but that's all right to preserve the conversation and make sure people feel comfortable speaking. So it's all for the best. This is clearly a sensitive issue, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife is tasked with building a wolf management plan. 
And in an effort to balance the ecological, economic, and social needs, they've taken a three-pronged approach. One, that involves broad public outreach. Two, a technical working group comprised of science advisors and wolf managers from other states. And three, a stakeholder advisory group, or SAG, which is made up of individuals with different perspectives and interests in wildlife conservation, agricultural production, and hunting and outfitting from across the state. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife hired Keystone Policy Center, a nonprofit, non-advocacy organization to run this intensive, years-long process. Here's Julie Shapiro. And the role of the SAG is as an advisory group. So it won't be, a, it's not a decision-making body, but it ha- plays a really important role in trying to, um, to discuss and define and describe the interests and recommendations of a variety of stakeholders. Um, and so those inputs are being heard actively, I think, and um, those reports and recommendations are, are being received um, by CPW and by the commission. Julie walks members of the SAG through different components of what would be in a wolf management plan including things like compensation for livestock losses, the timing of wolf reintroduction efforts, and how to manage potential impacts to both livestock and elk. We had been talking about conflict potential with livestock for a number of months. That's Hallie Mahold, Western Landowners Alliance's program director. She was chosen to represent the needs of landowners and livestock producers on the stakeholder advisory group. We were able to successfully put forward some recommendations around compensation, which is another really key part to conflict reduction. And then um, I led a subcommittee to talk about conflict minimization. But what we wanted to do was really be able to put together a set of more specific, broader recommendations and strong recommendations because Every time it came up, it seemed like it was an area where there was more consensus from stakeholder advisory group members. So convening a group such as the SAG can help by creating a process for social learning. And that takes time. And along the way, if the group is able to influence decisions, it can increase public trust and ultimately buy-in for the final management plan. Because if there is a lack of transparency or perceived injustice, then the whole process breaks down. It really did focus a lot on the importance of it being led by landowners, involving producers, the importance of being able to adapt these tools to specific landscapes, to specific operations. Hallie is talking about the conflict minimization tools we heard about in the last two episodes. The value of using these tools kind of, you know, on both private and public land and looking at kind of how do we use these tools across these ownership boundaries? How do we really build robust funding for a conflict minimization program? And there are other much more contentious issues, issues such as forming a compensation program that adequately covers the cost of losing livestock to wolves and when and where to use lethal control when wolves chronically depredate livestock. There's lots of milestones for success and collaboration. Um, I think the start is just getting people to agree to come to the table, um, getting people to start opening up about what their interests and their values are, not just their positions, but what is it that motivates them, and um, getting people to start to share common visions and goals um, and work towards solutions that can meet those. Um, I think those are all milestones along the way. So the measures of success along the way are not solely about, you know, 100% agreement, but also just about fostering the understanding across different perspectives. 
Okay, let's take a step back here. The SAG has been meeting to inform a management plan as a non-decision-making body, as is defined in their charter, which begs the question, how much influence will this group actually have? And studies show, when stakeholders have genuine influence on decision-making, this type of collaborative approach can reduce conflict around contentious wildlife management issues. So the question needs to be asked, is this group just a dog and pony show just for looks? Or will this dog have teeth, real bite, and decision-making influence? So we talked with some SAG members representing different interests. I'm uh, Jonathan Proctor. I'm with Defenders of Wildlife based out of Denver, Colorado. And something to note, Defenders of Wildlife was one of the organizations that spearheaded reintroduction efforts in Colorado. I think that we are can be a powerful group in achieving change. The power of having everybody from the livestock industry to the um, conservation community, environmentalists to uh, hunters to um, recreation interest to having all of these different people together asking for the same thing is incredibly powerful. And I think that we, we might uh, achieve success. But having said that, those will be few issues that where we all come together, but that's where our power is. My name is Lenny Klingelsmith. I'm a rancher born and raised in Meeker, Colorado. Obviously I'm results oriented personally, so the outcome is the important part and whatever process is required to have an outcome that kind of works for everybody, I think is the important is the important thing. And like I say, we're a recommend we're a recommendation body, so we don't really have any decision making power. So hopefully, hopefully our recommendations won't fall on deaf ears, and that we can come to some consensus or near consensus on most things. How could Colorado Parks and Wildlife staff or commission ignore that when? We put so much time and effort and, and so many diverse people with very diverse opinions coming together. If we find common ground on a few issues, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is going to have a lot of explaining to do if they reject that. And I, so I don't think they will. So I do think this will be meaningful in those areas where we find consensus. So is this process legitimate? What I hear from Lenny and Jonathan is that power lies in consensus. Finding common ground is where the dog has teeth. I, I, I believe, personally, I believe there's been some movement from both sides towards the middle. And we're getting to talk to each other and find out what reality is. This idea of learning what reality is goes back to that idea Jared Talley talked about in episode one. The importance of collectively defining the problem. Different communities with different values will see the same situation as having different problems. Remember that assuming the problem assumes the values and we have diverse values and we need to think about that. But this is still tough work and collaboration can fail, but the process can be really powerful and it can produce durable outcomes. And this process just leaves a little more space for folks. So bit by bit, they can meet across the great divide. Hey listener, we really appreciate you listening to Working Wild U. And we have a small favor to ask. Please head over to our show notes and fill out the listener survey. We want to learn more about you and what impact this show is having. Your feedback will inform how we make the show in the future and help us obtain funding so we can continue this important work. Thank you. Now back to the show. Okay, Alex, this is it. We're wrapping the season up. But where do we go from here? 
What can we learn? That's a good question, Jared. And throughout the season, we asked the folks we interviewed about their vision for the future of wolves in the West. My vision for wolves is they'll be allowed to come back in places where they fit and the ecosystems will be fuller and better. Some human activities have to change for restoration and rewilding to work. I don't think they need to go away, but they need to be more thoughtful. We're not against the wolves being here. They just need to be managed like everything else. If everybody expects us to manage our livestock, then ODFNW should be managing the wolves. We're really struggling understanding one another. Is it possible? Yes. But it takes the right people caring about each other and caring about the world itself. Most people are pretty darn thoughtful when you don't squeeze them down to the bottom line. I would like to have tools in my toolbox beyond what I currently have, which is next to nothing. Work on building the trust and the relationships where we're not just at each other's throat around wildlife management. The reality is that humans are everywhere right now, and so the future is learning how to manage these species within the human matrix. We're here, and we just have to figure it out. We're hearing some common threads here. Building relationships, compromise, understanding that conflicts need to be managed and that working land stewardship is fundamental to conservation. And simply put, people shouldn't feel squeezed to the bottom. Maybe we are getting closer to that shared vision for the future. It turns out that rural folks care just as much about the environment as folks that live in cities or in suburbia. That's Robert Bonning the Undersecretary of Agriculture for the U.S. Department of Natural Resources. Everyone in America agrees that we should conserve the environment. Rural folks care about how we conserve the environment. Top-down regulatory approaches are often not very effective and they're often divisive. Undersecretary Bonnie was speaking on a new model for conservation, one that comes from the ground up and can support whole, intact landscapes that include working lands. In order to conserve places like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, we need the active participation of the people who own and manage the lands outside the park. What's more, it turns out a lot of ranchers and farmers actually know a thing or two about stewardship, and they want it to be at the table to develop solutions. With the investments in land stewardship, relationships, and information, this new model will be far more durable. The pendulum swings that we see in our electoral politics these days often mean that hard-fought battles in conservation may be temporary, or that those battles may persist for decades. Maybe, instead of waging war, we ought to build a broad middle that will support conservation no matter who's in office. A broad middle, that radical center this is where shared visions live and where wolves and working lands both can have a future in the West. One that is mutually tied together. Really? We all care about wildlife and conserving the open lands and wild spaces of the West. And if we're not conserving what we have, we face losing it. All of it. The communities, the working lands, and the wildlife that depend on them. We're losing a football field of natural area to development every two and a half minutes in the West. These rural working lands are the glue that ties these intact landscapes together. So if you care about wildlife, ecosystem services, or quality recreational experiences, 
then you have a stake in what happens to these working lands because they impact all of us. Whether you live there or not. Working Wild U is a production of Montana State University Extension and Western Landowners Alliance with support from the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, Western Sayre, and listeners like you. Today's episode was directed and edited by Zach Altman and produced by Matthew Collins, Zach Altman, Alex Few, Jared Beaver, and Abby Nelson. Our hosts are Jared Beaver and Alex Few. Lewis Wirtz is our executive producer. Music is from Artlist and Blue Dot Sessions. The song we played at the top of the show was The Great Divide by Luke Combs and Billy Strings, shared under fair use. And a very special thanks to all of our guests this season. We'll see you later this year for season two of Working Wild You.